Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, big friend of mine, Abdullah Saeed of the show High Maintenance of Bong Appetit, used to write the Weedekick column for Vice back in the day. And uh, he has a new podcast. We'll get to all that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can write me an email at turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on various forms of social media at Left for Damien. If you would like to get in touch with me over Facebook, there is a Facebook page run by my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham. Tristan will get the message to me. You can also check out some comments people write on there, engage in some conversation, check out some cool stuff that gets sent into the show that we post up on there. And if you don't use Facebook, you still want to find out all that kind of stuff, there is a Tumblr page, turnoutapunk.tumblr.com. And if you would like to support this show, the best way of doing that is by heading over to iTunes, where you can write a review, subscribe to this thing, rate it if you are so inclined. And if you don't use iTunes and you want to support the show, you can do that by telling all of your friends. And while you're on iTunes or wherever you check out this podcast, you'll notice there are some other podcasts in the Turnout of Punk family. There is, of course, Turnout of Punk Footnotes hosted by myself and Chris O'Toole, where we dissect every episode of Turn It a Punk and, and get real nerdy about it. There is also Oil and Flowers, which is a cannabis podcast hosted by my good friend, Buddha Blaze, and myself. And we are both cannabis medical patients and medical users. And we uh, enjoy talking about the comings and goings as Canada hurdles towards legalization. And it's a it's a podcast that, you know, could have done a crossover with today's episode because, believe me, there's a lot of bleed over today. Today's a podcast that exists in both uh, uh, universes, I guess. Yeah, universes works. Speaking of supporting the show, thank you to everyone at Vans for contributing and making this thing such a easy thing for me to do. Vans came on board and said, hey, we're just going to give you some money. You book whoever you want, and we will just keep uh, supporting you so you don't have to pay for it out of your pocket, which is great because I didn't want to have to pay for it out of my pocket anymore. So thank you very much to Vans. And uh, I think that's it. I think I'm done in all those plug things I got to get to. On to the show. This week on the show, Abdullah Saeed of, as I said, High Maintenance, Bong Appetit, and the original writer of Weedekit. He is someone that I'm a friend of and been a fan of for a, a long time. Um, I wanted to, you know, hang out with him when I was out in Los Angeles, we were hanging out, had no idea that he played in punk, had no idea that he grew up as a punk kid. And you know, when I found out what better excuse to sit down and smoke weed than, you know, doing a turn out a punk podcast with someone. So we did. And it's a lot of fun. I'm not going to ramble on too, too much, but I do need to let you know that Abdullah's got a brand new podcast called Great Moments in Weed History, hosted by himself and David Binnenstock, and you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all, all the other places you find this podcast and, and all your favorite podcasts out there, because this thing, you know, this podcast thing, it is taking off, but it is a great podcast. I strongly recommend you listen to it, and Oil and Flowers, Buddha Blaze and myself talking about cannabis, not not in the same way. So you can listen to both of them. They, there's no overlap, I promise you. They will be a very complimentary podcast. And and that's what we want, you know? Just, just you know, everything to be copacetic. 
in, the, in cannabis. That's what the world in cannabis is. Copacetic, no beefs. There's never any weird ego beefs up. No, I'm just, just kidding. But certainly not between these two podcasts. Uh, shout out to Buddha Blaze. Uh, check out Oil and Flowers. Um, and uh, that's it. Oh, except for the notes. Uh, the paper noises you hear in the background are rolling papers, of course. And at some point, we start referring to a friend that's passed out. That's our friend, Justin, who had a little too much dab. Anyway, sit back, relax, and enjoy Abdullah Saeed on Turned Out a Punk. When I'm high, I always want to double check everything a little bit more. Yeah, no, no, totally. You know, that's why that's, I think that stuff about people being worse drivers on cannabis is kind of bullshit. It is absolutely bullshit because, uh, you know, research of whether or not cannabis impairs you when you operate vehicles, every machinery has been barred for the past 65 years. So, you know, if I... If I was ever in court for it, I would be like, well, you actually don't have the proper data to support the idea that being on cannabis or having consumed cannabis impairs my ability to drive. People are getting this confused now for oil and flowers. So I've got to, I got to like make this, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I got to make this back to what this podcast is because today on the way over to your, your beautiful dwelling where mm-hmm. we're hanging out right now, chilling. Mm-hmm. That you you let me know that once again proving the ultimate line theory true, everyone cool is somehow connected to punk rock. That you were in fact not only just a punk fan, but in some punk bands. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I when I was young, uh, I was very attracted to punk rock. I grew up in Thailand. Well, we got to start. And- wait, wait, wait. I got to start this off the way I start. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. I get the titular line in. Yeah, which is Abdullah. How did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Yeah, so uh, punk music to me, I think, as it was to, as it is to a lot of kids, was sort of uh, an angsty and energetic escape, mm-hmm. and just something that felt cool, right? So I grew up in Thailand uh, until I was thirteen, and I was a little bit of a troublemaker, but not terrible, but you know, a little bit of a troublemaker. And then my parents got divorced when I was 13. I came with my mom to the U.S. where the rest of our family is. And I started going to school in the U.S. And that first year was eighth grade. I was, like, trying to get with the style of, you know, people in Long Island, right, in the the 90s. So, like, I came from Thailand where weird things were popular. Things like Alien Workshop was really popular in Thailand in the 90s. Yeah, very strangely. Was it, like, bootleg or was it actually Alien Workshop? A lot of it was bootleg. Okay. Uh, But, you know, what? it's like... For example, say at some point, Alien Workshop, the, the skate company, is like, we're going to have a bunch of clothes manufactured in Thailand. Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly, some of that ends up on the street. Yeah. People think it's cool. Yeah. And suddenly, it becomes a thing, right? So, you know, I definitely came from a culture where skateboarding was starting to be seen as very cool. And, you know, of course, like skateboarding and punk rock go hand in hand on the way back. So, you know, I came to the United States, and I remember, you know, th- that, you know, we were poor at, at the time. This was, like, the poorest I'd ever been, probably, in my life. You know, it was, like, me and my mom. And, you know, that, you know, she would take me to Burlington Co. Factory to, like, get whatever the stuff was. And I remember, like, trying to fit in, rocking that stuff. And, you know, just, like, it was, like, a time when you're an adolescent, and you're, you know, rather than trying, you'd rather have friends than be yourself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because your options are limited. So, 
Uh, but in that, you know, I ended up moving to a bunch of different schools in a very short period of time, New Jersey, Massachusetts. Um, and it was in New Jersey where I ended up in 10th grade. Now, you know, before, I grew up playing the drums. I played the drums since I was about eight. Um, learned from bands like Nirvana, uh, the Foo Fighters, we talked about before. Bands like 311 and Red Hot Chili Peppers, maybe okay. ones that I would be less... Uh, ready to admit that I listen to now. Were you already like, wait, was you, to bring back cannabis, was 311 your gateway to cannabis culture or were you kind of exposed to it in Thailand or? No, n not quite. Yeah, yeah. it's. A, I was I was 13 when I was there so I was just, it was just before I discovered cannabis. I discovered cannabis at 14 in uh, Massachusetts, okay. right? Uh, but that, that that's a whole nother thing. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, no, and, not to go down that path. Yeah, so I mean, and you know, at the time, you know, eighth grade, ninth grade, uh, I'm playing the drums. I'm like doing, you know, my thing. I really enjoyed playing, you know. And that was when I started appreciating uh, guys like Clyde Stubblefield, you know what I mean, and, and sort of like funky, you know, Bowtowny stuff as well. So, you know, when I was in New Jersey, now th the only punk band I had heard of up, up until that point was Green Day, right? Mm -hmm. So when Dookie came out. Um, I don't know, maybe I was 9 or 10, I can't remember exactly, but by the time it got to Thailand, and remember that this is before the internet, so if you lived in Southeast Asia, whatever music was going to make it over, that's what made it over, and that's what you got. So, mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, we somehow got, yeah, I listened to Primus a lot as a kid, which was like a random band that mm -hmm. somehow made it over there. But and they have connections to punk, right? Like they have a, Yeah, to jam bands and to, to like punk somehow, yeah. they're definitely... Connected to like that LA things. scene, right? They're from like cause I have like compilation with them on it from like '86. Yeah, I think they're from Northern Cali, but I'm not 100 okay. percent sure. It's like a tape. I'll, I'll correct this in the intro. Totally, but yeah. So basically, um, you know, I played the drums, and I was exposed to whatever different random types of music bands. Uh, you know, as a kid in Thailand, came to the United States, and when I ended up in New Jersey, that was when. I met this kid named Mike who was in, uh, you know, in one of my classes and he was just like, he did not give a fuck. You know what I mean? He was just this kid. He had a big mop of hair. He would show up late. Like, he would get kicked out. He would have to be sent to the office. He didn't give a fuck, right? The bad kid. Yeah, he was the bad kid completely. And so me and a friend of mine who whose name was Paul were like, you know, aspiring bad kids, right? In a sense, like, you know. And because we wanted to not give a fuck, I suppose, but it just seemed like, you know, uh, we hadn't really discovered the right outlet. He was really into pop punk and stuff, right? Which I thought was very lame. He liked Blink-182, okay. which I still, to this day, I'm like, you know, really not a fan of the music itself because it connotes something for me. And, you know, I, I just don't like the sound of it. But, like, um, you know, this guy Mike and his buddy Teddy, who was this sort of uh, virtuosic... Uh, guitar player, right? And he like literally like he lived in like the like the the most hood apartment complex in like the entire town. Um, you know, he slept on the couch with his dog, and just you know, the guys just sat around on the couch. They smoked cigarettes and watched reruns on TV, and you know, Shredded. and then yeah, and then play guitar, yeah. and, and and so we thought that was really cool. I mean, it, it was a very romantic thing to sort of be like, you know. Um, to, to just live this sort of nihilistic existence, you know, to be mm -hmm. a little bit anarchic, 
uh, to be a little bit cynical and, you know, uh, distracted, but indulgent in that distraction. So we started a band and Mike actually, I still look back and think like, even if the songs weren't good, that guy was creative because the name of the band was Average Citizen, okay. which he came up yeah, with, which, cool. which is a cool name How for a band. How old were you guys at this point? Uh, I was like 16. Okay. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. That's a cool name for a band. 15 or 16. So yeah. And I always thought that was a really cool name for a band. Even now I'm like, that's a great name for, for yeah. something. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Average citizen. But like, uh, you know, so we played a few songs, like played a few shows, and I got really into the, the vibe of it. Mike was the guy who introduced me to a lot of bands. Uh, the Dead Kennedys, which is a band that I still listen to yeah. to this day. Um, well, you've, you worked with Jello before, right? Uh, well, I met Jello. I, okay. I never worked with them. A band I was in at one point was on Alternative Tentacles, but you know, well, that's kind of working uh, with them. Yeah, that was before I was in the band, though. Okay, well, you, but but yeah, it was. Uh, he was definitely. I, I mean, I had the like very, uh, you know, sort of great fortune of getting to meet him, which was I was stoked on because to me, the Dead Kennedys stand apart from a lot of the punk bands back then in a musical sense as mm -hmm. well as in a content sense. Mm -hmm. You know, like. It's the most thought out or the most intellectual, like, anarchic music. You know, like, another band I listened to was The Exploited, right? Which was, like, a very rage-filled yeah. band that yeah. was, you know, all about, like... It just was, like, they would yell slogans, right? Yeah. 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 And then there was, like, The Subhumans, which were a little bit different and more yep. poetic, I think. Black Flag, which was, you know... Uh, I mean, well, it was Black Flag. I don't know. I listened to the songs. It was like, I don't know how to describe it in words. And also, you know, it, like, there was, uh, who else were, were big bands? The Addicts, TSOL. You know, so it was a lot of stuff that at the time in New Jersey, you know, pop punk was big. Kids wearing like checkered little van slip ons and jumping up at the same time at the hits in the song. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, like, we thought that was really lame. And, you know, we would just play. And so the funny thing is, you know, at this time, I'm like, I look like a punk. You know what I mean? I have, like, cut hair, and it's all crazy. I have a couple of earrings, and, like, you know, I'm wearing ripped-up clothes. But it's also the late 90s, so I'm also wearing, like, Jankos and, like, you know what I mean? It's, like, a, a weird look, um, you know, because also, like, hardcore music at the time or, you know, new metal or whatever you want to call it, there was, like, you know... Uh, was there was a like big scene out there, right? Yeah, and I was in Massachusetts for about a year yeah. where, you know, that was uh if you remember the band Godsmack, which I think they were the sort of harbingers of an, of an entire era of <laughs> quote unquote heavy music, yeah, right? Yeah, which yeah. looking back is yeah. is pretty lame. Um but at the time was, you know, all the music festivals and like I remember seeing like Megadeth, right? And yeah. who opens for Megadeth? It's like Godsmack and all, you know, all, all these other bands. So it was like yeah, you know, it was this weird mishmash of stuff. So and then ultra masculine kind of like hyper aggressive mm -hmm. kind of music. Broy metal. Broy bro metal. Yeah. Broy like metal. It, which was a weird scene. And now the whole time that's going on it, behind the scenes at home, what am I doing? My brother left. My brother who was like, you know, DJ producer into electronic music, left his old turntables, a purple Newmark and a silver Gemini. Anybody who folks at turntables knows what that purple Newmark's about. And like you know, and a bunch of records, and I started mixing, and I got into producing music, and the type of shit I was listening to was like, on the one hand, like Aphex Twin and Square Pusher, and then on the other hand, the other hand, like Wu Tang mm -hmm. and you know, uh, Bootcamp Click and stuff. Were you into like any of that, like, 
I guess it was in Def Jux by that point, but I guess it was still like Rush Records, or was it Def Jux by that point? I was very, very much into Def Jux. Um, you know, I was a huge Mr. Liffin. LP yeah. to me is, you know, uh, I got to interview him for Vice at one point a, a few years ago, and I was really stoked on it. Uh, I got to smoke some weed with him and stuff. Because to me, he's, you know, a lot of people don't recognize that before Run the Jewels, this guy was already oh, yeah. a legend. Oh, you know, yeah. and, and not just like, Oh, he was like, you know, like, I love MC Paul Barman, who, you know, no one knows who that is. And literally, that guy is like the rapper's rapper, the nerd you've never heard yeah, of that, you yeah. know, everyone's into. LP was not that guy. LP was a fucking real, like, in Philly when I was in college in 2000, you know, like, he was a legend. Everyone knew who he was. I mean, you know, it's weird to me that coming up with Killer Mike, you'd hear all the coverage, you'd be like, oh, yeah, Killer Mike is doing an album with some guy yeah, and I'd be like producers rapping with him yeah, yeah. And, and I was like wait Killer Mike is literally the guy who was on the whole world and then had that one song in Madden <laughs> until Run the Jewels right no disrespect I, no, I no, think no, Killer Mike's bad rap, rap. but yeah like, it was just but yeah like I, it's just I think it speaks how short people's attention spans can be sometimes that yeah. like yeah Company Flow is like you know of that era like that was one that was the group and mm-hmm. it was like it was oh, places yeah. like Vice magazine that I was reading about. It was places like, like you would read about them in like the Source. Like they were like you're right. They were legit. They weren't like just like a nerdy group. Like they were like legit graffiti. They had mm-hmm. that sick video with the tags going through the subway. Yeah. And that was the first time I heard Breeze Bruin, who's one of my favorite rappers from the Juggernaut. Yeah, so he's yeah. On the fire yeah, with yeah. Your, but, but yeah, so, you know, like, that definitely in college. So that actually leads nicely into the next chapter of my life. It's like there was two distinct punk chapters in my life. One was the one I just described to yeah. you in high school. And the other one came later when I was in my mid to late 20s, actually, with a band called the Kaminas, right, which is a, a band of South Asian dudes for the most part uh, who play, you know, have been labeled Muslim punk, quote unquote, for a long time. But, you know, really, it's it's just music, punk music that's inspired by that cultural perspective of being Muslim. Some of the shit is kind of blasphemous. Yeah. But uh, it's all really thought-provoking. So basically... Is that, like, the media putting that on, or is that, like, a self-identified name? Yeah, so, you know, basically, like, I was watching the media paint them in this way from the sidelines in that, like, I knew these guys... The founding guitarist of the band, uh, he and I go way back. Our parents, and in fact, our grandparents too. Apparently, wow. it turns out we're, we're you know we're homies. Our grandfathers were apparently homies, but we go way way back. Um, you know, and I was sort of seeing him do. He started a Muslim punk band in two thousand four. Now think about that. If you're a Muslim kid in America, you're in you know post two thousand one, post nine eleven. You know, you're in a precarious situation. I have a very Muslim name. It was a time of fear. And I found it really inspiring that these guys, right, my buddies Bossam and, and Shah Jahan, they, they were like, we don't give a fuck. We're putting out music that's like, it pisses off both sides of the thing. And that's how I've always felt. And I think the second coming of punk for me was like being in America post 9-11 and on the one, and then being a cannabis person. Look, on the one side, I'm... You know, my, I have a very Muslim name, and I'm seen as like, oh, this guy's Muslim by like, you know, your ordinary Americans, I guess, whatever you want to call them. And on the other side, Muslims are like, well, we don't claim this guy. He's, uh, you know, he's fucking smokes weed and eats pork on TV or whatever, right? So like, 
you know, I've always felt like disenfranchised in, in that sense, like, you know, caught in the middle. And, you know, I found it inspiring that these guys were doing it. But at the time, I didn't want to make music that would uh, somehow try to play on my ethnic difference. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, like, um, I was like, no, I, I want to be identified as an artist or as a musician or as whatever I do uh, as that and not as a brown that or a Muslim yeah. that or a Pakistani that. But then, like, you know, over time, like, I started to see why it's actually important to lean into that stuff sometimes, you know, just in in the name of self-exploration or expression. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was, um, you know, that's when I met in 2009. So, you know, in between, yep, hip-hop music, I did rap music for a long time, I performed. Did you promote anything? Uh, yeah, I mean, just independently. I was yeah. never on a label. Me and my brother released, like, one single that was on a label called uh, Blunted Funk or something, like, long ago. But um, I used to rap with a band, my brother in it, called Cold Hands Collective. Uh, so there was a whole in-between, you know, ages 18 to, you know, 24, 25, I was... Did that early punk band record? Uh, there's recordings of it perhaps somewhere. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I was in, oh, so I was also in high school. I, I forgot to mention, I was in another punk band that I started. I quit Average Citizen when I started smoking weed okay. because they were not really into weed. And I was very curious about weed. And yeah. I started, you know, got more into it. And they were like, oh, those doing drugs. And I was like, fuck you guys. That's no fun. And quit the band. I started another band with a guy named Jimmy who does smoke weed, who did smoke weed. And that band was called The Fascist Police. Oh, cool and, name. And yeah, that, that's a great name too, right? I think I peaked with names in my high school <laughs> bands. Average Citizen and The Fascist no, Police. Dude, I was going to say, because you named, you've named several cannabis-related products now, verticals, whatever, like shows, things. Mm-hmm. They're all killer names. <laughs> and we all know it's all in a name. As a guy who plays in a band with a swear word oh, for a name, a band with a great name, man. It's that's all a great in a name. name. It's up all is... in the name, right? Yeah, like absolutely. You're just, that's what you have to yeah. do. So I think you've got it. You've got it. You never peaked with your names. You've just got that knack. <laughs> yeah, just gotta keep them going. Yeah. But yeah, so basically, the fascist police was me and Jimmy's brainchild, and it was a band where I had a little more control. Mike was a little bit of a tyrant in the mm-hmm. band who was like, you know, this goes, this doesn't go. Sort of the lead, you know, uh, voice of the band. So, the, you know, the Fascist Police was a little bit more like I wrote a lot of the songs, you know, and we were, my buddy Sean played bass in the band. And uh, it was like, it was a lot more fun kind of, right? But, but regardless, so I go off to college, I get really into rap music, I rap for a long time. Uh, the Kaminas thing, I, you know, I was, mm-hmm. I'm sorry for jumping around. Dude, no, it's like, this is what the show is. The show's jumping around and rambling, and this is like awesome. the best one yet, because this is like, I was going to say before you, before you jump too far away from this point, like you're saying like your band wasn't into weed, wasn't into cannabis, but you wanted to get into it. I came to it much, much later than you. Like, I obviously was interested into it, mm. interested when I first tried it, but I think the thing was I was scared about how interested I was in it. Mm-hmm. At first, and that's why I think I ran away, and then ultimately went straight edge mm-hmm. for so long. But there's there's just like a certain type of person that smokes cannabis in a different way and takes to it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I mean, and I really took to it. I remember, you know, after I got into doing being a professional cannabis TV guy, yeah. <laughs> which is a weird job to have. One of like the first mm-hmm. ever. 
You know, like yeah, I guess I guess yeah. one of the first ever, which is really wild to think about still. And you know, I asked an old friend of mine. I was like, "Yo, when we were younger, did I just really fucking love weed like so much more than anything?" And she was like, "Yeah." <laughs> so I was like, "Okay, I believe you." You know what I mean? Like, look, I just for something about it, just I don't know yeah. what it is. You know, I, I just really like it, and it's led me to some interesting places. Thankfully, it does. It's like, and it's weird. Like I met Matt Riddle. You know, the, the UFC fighter, do you know that guy? Who's no, fired from the UFC for being, uh, for being chewing a cannabis. Really? Dana White fired him. He tested positive twice, and Dana White was like, you're fired. So I did a thing with him a couple weeks ago where he chopped me mm-hmm. and busted me open, like, something fierce with his chop. He's a he's a hard-fighting man. He's got, the, like, one of the most vicious knockouts in the history of the UFC. Oh, my God. Broke a guy's jaw in two places. He's got a no- knockout. Knock you. Knock it was that for Canadian? <laughs> it was, it was I love it, man. It's like... Uh, the cannabis brings the Canadian out. Yeah. <laughs> it really I'm like does. seeing my beard frizzy and your, my reflection right now, and I'm like, oh my gosh, it looks so... You look like modest Yahoo. I look like that, <laughs> or like, you know, the Canadian uh, lumberjack photo. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, it's just... Uh, it's, it's weird, like, when people take to it, how much it uh, it can change, like, you know, mm-hmm. your whole life. Mm-hmm. And things like that. It just took me way, way later to realize that. Yeah. And so, so, where'd you go from there? Oh, yeah. So, 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 to pick that up. So, you know, high school, punk, college, rap, music. Kept going with it, um, you know. And then in 2009, I think, I was playing drums in a band called The Mighty Paradox, um, w- which was the front person, front woman was this artist called Moore Mother, who's really sick, who's like who does really cool music now. Um, but, yeah, so, basically... Um, I was playing drums for them, and at a show at the Tritone, which is a great venue in South Philly, which I don't think exists anymore, um, I met the guys from this band, Popo, right? Uh, And one of the dudes, uh, you know, the youngest guy, uh, my buddy, Hassan, you know, we met at one of these shows and, you know, shot the shit briefly, I suppose. Um, But then, like, a little while later, he left Popo, and he was performing and doing songs with kind of a country vibe to them under the name Sonny Ellie, right? Um, so he hit me up and was like, you know, the, I think the guys from the Caminas uh, recommended that we hang out. So then we met up and started playing some stuff, you know, and he was like, you play the drums, whatever. I was like, yeah, you know, I used to play punk music and I played all kinds of different shit. You know, I wasn't really like a punk guy at the time necessarily, but, you know. I still, I always still listen to the old bands that I love, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. It was always just kind of had the vibe. But, uh, and at the time I lived with this guy who actually collected like a lot of very interesting obscure punk records and stuff. So there was like some cool shit laying around. So basically we started playing. Did and they, they played a band or do a label or anything? Or just uh, like a record collector? It was just a collector. A yeah, band? yeah. Just the guy with like a really big collection. Yeah. But basically at the, uh, so I, um, so at the time I was, you know, I was using the name The Kid, Blame The Kid, you yeah, know, like yeah. that's that's always been sort of my name. So that was like when I dropped the blame part of it and just went to The Kid. So we called the band Sonny Ellie and The Kid, which had this, you know, feeling of like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance yeah, Kid or, yeah. or something. You know, it had this cowboy feel to it. And Sonny was dressing like a cowboy, you know, at the time it was just, you know, he's got an interesting and ever evolving style. And at the time he was really into cowboy stuff. And, you know... He uh, was rocking it. The music had like a cowboy twang to it. So, you know, 
Uh, I put on one of his cowboy hats and, you know, it, it had a really cool look to it along with that sound. A couple of Pakistani guys wearing cowboy hats playing like some rockabilly over train beats and stuff. And Sonny is a very gifted songwriter. And, you know, we... I, I think that was like some of the best music I've ever done. You know, we played a bunch of shows in Philly and basements, you know. So it was sort of my reintroduction to that punk life. And then... Um, a couple years later... Did you guys record at all, or was that just, like, mm-hmm. purely a live thing? We have a bunch of songs on Bandcamp, and, okay. and I, I could send you all yeah, like shit. Yeah, I tell you, check it out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. definitely and we please. did a bunch of music videos and stuff. There's yeah, like we'll link to it. Yeah, 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 awesome. That would be great. Yeah, and it's like, I mean, that's... When I when I look back, I mean, that's a project that, you know, like, I've, I've, I've gone off into so many other directions now, like producing, writing, yeah. acting, you know... It's like I'm trying to get in these different worlds. When I look back, that's a project that I would like, you know, really love to like revive at some point just because the the music was really good, you know? Yeah. It was just the two of us, and a a really smart move about being two guys in a band is that you only split the uh, pay, the payout two ways, which is fantastic. Also, two guys in a car, and you're on tour. You know what I mean? You got all your gear, whatever you want. So that was fun. And, you know, we started playing with the Kaminas. At this point, the Kaminas, the Pakistani Muslim punk band, whatever you want to call yeah, them, yeah. have been around for a few years. And, you know, they were they had like sort of a revolving cast of members, you know. And at the time, you know, we played a few shows with them. We played a few shows with them. And then they, uh, a couple of the guys left the band. And it ended up being like, you know, just two guys. And they were still getting offers for shows in cool places in like Europe, you know. At, at the time, there was a show in, in Norway or whatever, and basically, me and Sonny joined the Caminas to be like, "All right, well, let's join this band for now, and we'll go on the road." And we did, and then uh, ended up doing an album with them. And so after that album, um, which was a self-titled Caminas album, which yeah, I mean that's also online. Who put on that in? Or you guys? Self-release it or everything self-release. So, so this is all stuff. I mean, you know, you want to talk about marketable or unmarketable music. This is a very niche thing, and it's you know, despite the talent of the band uh, and the grassroots nature of their following, they haven't really gotten that. You know, the, like through the career of the band for 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 many years, they haven't gotten like that type of recognition. And I mean, it's in one way, it's really cool that you know, it's maintained with a grassroots vibe for this for this long but at the same time i mean i think in some ways it shows that um you know this cultural expression is still overlooked and that muslims pakistanis south asians whatever you want to call it are still unrepresented enough or underrepresented enough that the major channels of content distribution in this world don't think that you know something of this nature is is safe or okay to distribute for some reason, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Of one way or another. So I, I think it's a testament to that. And I, you know, I still, uh, you know, I've guested on like a few shows uh, with the guys in the last few months. You know, like they were through LA. I played with them on the East Coast. So those are your drums in the other <coughs> room over there. Yeah, that's my little little drum kit. So you still play? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, not as much as I would like. But you're that- still gig ready. Seems like yeah, it. well, I I now also I can't stop apparently, but I, I make rap music again. Oh, okay, and you know what's so funny? You want to hear something? Like I 
release a rap song every few months, you know, and I have a bunch sitting around and I post them on my SoundCloud. And, you know, the last few years, so as a kid, I always wanted to be a professional musician since I was a kid, since I could learn to play a drum, since I formed my first band. Yeah. In every band I ever played, that's the dream in the back of your head. You know, there's such a small chance of it, but you still want to do it, right? Now, that's always been my dream. And I live now what is a lot of people's dream. What is my dream also? I, you know, I get to smoke cannabis. I get to make television. I really, you know, am fortunate in that way. I should have told you this is my dream. You do my dream show. Yeah. You know, I get a wrestling show, which is my other that's, dream that's, show. Yeah, that is definitely, I was going to say you do a dream show too. But like, but still, like, this is like, <coughs> you know, for a, for a, a cannabis connoisseur, this is the dream show, right? Like, this is, you yeah. Know, uh, and then, I mean, you know, I even, like, left that dream in some senses to, you know, to, to do whatever, you know, I, I find interesting or fun or whatever. But look, in the back of my mind, I still, you know, just like I was when I was a kid, want to be a professional musician. You know, I, I, I know that I never will be. And I still make music and release it because I just can't help but make music because I enjoy it, right? And the funny thing is, in the songs I release, there's, like, all kinds of cryptic shit that's like buried in those lyrics that one day later if somebody ever takes the trouble of like trying to decipher that shit they'll be like oh wow this guy was saying all i'm in it's that stuff that i'm keeping it the most real in yeah whatever i say on social media or twitter or in an interview or whatever else is not as real as what's in the lyrics <laughs> of the songs and no one listens to them no one gives a shit you know yeah, what i mean yeah. people literally like people watch my stuff thank god because that's what i get paid mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. right but they absolutely don't give a shit about my music, that's it's, for sure. It's fucking weird how now it's so separate. Like, I find for me, like, obviously, nowhere near as popular as you are in the cannabis world, but the people that know me I don't know about cannabis, that. In Canada, you're kind of a legend. Eh? Uh, yeah, but still, like, I don't know. You know, I, I bow down in respect. Like, I was saying, I learned from you, Dad. Um, but <laughs> no way. <laughs> No, I was saying, like, when I got into weed, it was when I was reading your shit. You know, that's when yeah. I was starting to smoke, so... That makes me very yeah. happy to hear, man. Thank you. So, I'm be, being honest when I say that, so... That's really cool. But the thing is, like, people that know me for the cannabis stuff don't know me at all from Fucked Up. And the people that know me for the wrestling stuff don't know me at all from the cannabis stuff, really. Even though it's the same company that I'm making them for. Like, it's just so... People are just so focused in what you do. Yeah. And it's like, there's no... It seems like crossover in this podcast, even. Like, there's people that listen to this podcast right now. I acknowledge just that fucking hate fucked up. and think we're a cello band. But they still begrudgingly listen because they enjoy these kind of conversations. Yeah, no. There's a universality to that. <coughs> oh, 100%, man. But props to you for being able to essentially have a foot in both worlds, man. That's really cool, you know? Well, I think it's like, you know, trying to live that dream. Like you said, like, I, I had the fantasy about being in a punk band. And then as soon as I got into cannabis, I had the fantasy of getting free weed. Yeah. Oh yeah, I know, right? So great. <laughs> I don't know. I gotta I gotta get more consistent. I don't have a giant jug of it on my table. I this do way. have a giant jug of it on my table. We're very fortunate out here in California. That's amazing. It's it's definitely has it changed uh since legalization, better or for worse so far? Yeah, you know the the thing about that is that and I said this in twenty twelve when you know, when, when cannabis legalization was first voted in is that we have to remain vigilant and skeptical because we should not trust the same authorities that have unjustly prohibited cannabis for so long to now justly regulate it. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, and what that means now is that, look, in California, for in exchange for recreational, whatever, adult use legalization of cannabis here, um, you know, they've they've tightened the measures on, you know, the restrictions for, for cannabis. So now the fines are increased for if you have a DUI or if you're a school zone or whatever else it might be. And on top of that, the government takes a sales tax. So now, like, you know, and on top of that, now the government keeps a record of, uh, you know, uh, who is a cannabis patient who's not. Frankly, I mean, it's it's sad that we have to rely on the validation from these institutions because they are just inherently corrupt, you know? So, um, look, in real time, I guess we can say it's progress because cannabis is not illegal anymore in that sense. But until... Do you want to hold for the plane or? Yeah, maybe. I can say that again. Wow, this motherfucker's like flying right into the house. No. They're here. They heard the thing about the jug of weed, and they're like, "What? Whether we're still rating people for this? We're still busting yeah. people for smoking together." Am I rambling too much or anything? Dude, this is the best. Yeah. Okay, great, great, great. This cool. is what this podcast is. But yeah, ideally, so, perfect. So, so yeah, I mean, my point is that like. These the compromises that we're making with the authorities just so that we can have quote unquote legal cannabis. I mean, is it really worth it? Is the question we have to ask. I mean, it's a little bit too late to ask that question because it's going that way, but I always hope that cannabis would change the machine and not that the machine would change cannabis. Mm -hmm. And what recreational adult use legalization, whatever you want to call it, looks like to me is the machine changing cannabis. I mean, you were talking about in Canada now, for example, the mass production of cannabis. Look, turning it into that is the opposite of what we should be doing. It's just like what we're doing is almost sacrificing an opportunity to really augment the way we live in a meaningful way by using cannabis differently than we use other commodities. But instead, we're doing the same thing. It's not because it wasn't a moral victory. It's, it's an economic victory. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's not going to be a, it's not going to be a, a cool. It's not going to be a, like a a, de- a legalization. It's going to be a regulation. Yeah, you know, look, the arguments of there's too many black men and Spanish men in jail right now apparently wasn't compelling enough mm-hmm. for the general public in any U.S. state to legalize cannabis because oh we should decriminalize this. Our prison population is insane and it's going to be incredibly discriminatory. That didn't work. Mm-hmm. You know what did work in Colorado is when they were like, hey, purple, like, you know, libertarian kind of state. Uh, how about your state will, you know, tax the shit out of legal cannabis and then your state will have lots, lots more money and they'll open schools and do whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's the latter that got them to vote that shit in. And it's the latter that got the a governor who was completely opposed to signing it when literally before he signed it he was like don't fucking come blame me when this shit hits the fan and then sign the bill right Mm -hmm. but like uh you know once it started working out he was like oh great legal cannabis i mean it's been reappropriated all these things these natural things get reappropriated opium was reappropriated you know what i mean but first by the british empire and today by the pharmaceutical industry Mm -hmm. uh you know um, <clears throat> cocaine was reappropriated. Look, something that had been chewed for thousands of years. Uh, everything. And now look, like now they're saying, okay, uh, you know, we're going to explore psilocybin or, you know, like mushrooms uh, for treatment of people with depression. 
that's the pharmaceutical industry. That's that's who makes depression drugs. Now, yeah, like, yeah. The, like the religion of money has got such a stranglehold. I mean, it's literally what how the entire world is built at this point. That you know, there's very little hope for us to not exploit the plant teachers. You know, sort of the plant medicines, whatever you want to call them, that should be drawing us away from this lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like. The only way you can maintain profit on a plant, because like a plant, you know, like we can't all grow it as beautifully as some of it turns out, but like we, anyone can grow it. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to really try hard to not grow it at all. It grows everywhere. I mean, and it's, it's incredibly useful. Uh, You know, it's literally nutritionally, right? Like cannabis meal, right? Mm -hmm. Hemp meal contains... All the essential amino acids that your body requires, right? Well, even like mushrooms, you can grow <coughs> mushrooms. Like, if that if the crazy stoner dudes I see buying the syringes full of spores at the head shop mm-hmm. can grow the mushrooms, then any one of us can grow these mushrooms too yeah. in our closet. So absolutely, we I mean, treat ourselves. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, it's, and people have been indigenous people have been for thousands of years. Thousands of years. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, sorry. Uh, so back to music. Where did yeah. you gonna? So you're. Uh, so you are you playing in? Do you guys tour a lot? You toured yeah. Europe, obviously. But. So I toured Europe with the Caminas. It was some really incredible shows. I mean, we played in Norway at the Canal Rock Festival. Uh, we played in Paris and Berlin, and we played in London at the Old Blue Last. Yeah, which was fun. You I'm sure you've played uh, there oh, right? God, a bunch yeah. of times. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's definitely many over many years. Saw some crazy things like. One night, the the people doing the bar were like, "We don't feel like cleaning up these glasses." And they're like washing these glasses. They're just like smash, smash, smash. smash oh my smash, god! Smash, 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 all the glass at the end of the night. It was like, "Well, oh, this is wild." Holy shit! You know? They don't gaf. No, hanging from the chandelier, swinging from the chandelier in there and stuff. Were you like affiliated with Vice at that point, or? Uh, yeah. So basically, I you know at the time was uh, working for. For Vice, I I can't remember if that was when I was like freelancing for Noisy, or when I was at the Creators Project. But yeah, I was covering music for okay. them at the time. Yeah. Okay, so that's how the that's how they come together for that show. Or did you set that one up through Vice, uh, or is that just like where you randomly wound up? I honestly can't remember. One okay. of the other guys set up the show. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So when you start doing stuff for Noisy, like who are you kind of working with? Were you like covering all these? Art? Were you mainly hip hop stuff at first, or uh, electronic music? So th- that was always sort of my specialty in the sense of I've always produced electronic music. Yeah. So I felt like I had this perspective on it, and in a sense, um, you know, like when I first came to Noisy, I was like, um, you know, you guys cover punk and hardcore, and you have a great handle on all these different styles of music. But I understand electronic music. And at the time, the scene that was coming up that I was really fascinated by was like the Flying Lotus led, uh, you know, sort of generation of beat makers, home beat makers, producers using uh, Reason or Logic or Ableton Live or what have you, using MPC based controllers, you know, and, and that, that generation that uh, first started putting stuff on SoundCloud. And, and this was a time when it was like, not trap music or what you associate with SoundCloud rap right now, but you know, uh, it was beat makers, like guys who grew up on equal parts 
uh, Wu Tang and Aphex Twin like me. You know what I mean? So or D- DJ Shadow and you know like I'm a big DJ Shadow fan since uh, since I'm pretty young. Did you collect and, records? Like you said, you yeah. that live that record guy collector guy. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a bunch of records, mostly uh, rap and electronic stuff. Yeah. A lot of vinyl singles, rap singles, boom bap stuff from the '90s. That's kind of my favorite shit to collect. Yeah. So I look. That's what I look for when I go to record stores. I, that's what I pull out. Have you heard this Urban Styles book that just came out? No, I don't think it's so. This, I had the guy on the podcast, Freddie Alva, who's uh, put out like the New Breed comp way back in the day, and like is like this old hardcore dude um, who moved from Peru when he was a kid to New York, and like kind of grew up in hardcore and watching graffiti happen at the same time, and being kind of around all the kids doing graffiti. So yeah. we did this book, kind of tracing like the origins of graffiti, and like one of the key kind of bands for this is this band Frontline, and uh-huh. the Beastie Boys did a Frontline cover. That's them. But those do they had three singers and they wound up being all the boom bap rap boom rap stuff producers in the nineties. Oh no. They did shit. stuff for like brand newbie they did stuff for like a lot of different people. Oh no kidding. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. interesting. Like, and it's like once again totally weirdly connected to punk and hardcore. And that was yeah. Mackie from the Cro Mags and Fun Loving Criminals band too. Really? Yeah, on drums. Oh, no kidding. I remember the Fun Loving Criminals. It's a cool book. Check it out. You yeah. Know, it's, he's definitely put together like a cool tome that like is kind of like a Rosetta Stone for like punk and hip hop being in the same place at the same time. Very interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, the two things have a lot of uh, common history. I mean, look, New York in the 80s, you know, mm-hmm. influential times for both things. Well, yeah, that's exactly. They both kind of grew really kind of ultimately like, you know, maybe they... The influences came from different places, but the, those influences coalesced in that city yeah. at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and it's like this weird thing where, you know, if you don't, if you were a kid and you didn't grow up interested in one or the other, or both, you know, you got to kind of question what kind of kid you're dealing with. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And now, you know, like, the barriers between those, like, what style of music you like. I remember being a kid and being like, like, you were a type of kid. Like, yeah, I was a were, punk kid yeah, because yeah. I dressed a certain way, <coughs> yeah, I listened to a certain type of music, and it didn't compute for a lot of people that I was listening to, you know, DJ Shadow in my car. I was listening to Dan the Automator, or yeah, I was like, listening to <coughs> Handsome Boy Modeling School, whatever, in my car. Or I was listening to fucking... Uh, Kid 606 or oh, yeah, like, no, you know. Be, like, you could be in other stuff, definitely. Like, I was, Oh, yeah, like, no. Nah, nah, nah. I mean, I was just elaborating but, on, like, the idea. But yeah. now, now kids are very agnostic in terms of style. Yeah, like, everything totally is changed. sort of blended. And you know what? The, the thing is, <clears throat> I think I, you can't ever look at a younger generation of kids' culture in the context of your own, you can't. because it is its own thing. The it internet didn't exist when this shit, this shit came like, up. You know? like, all these people sound so nuts when they get upset about the way music sounds today or the way kids act today. It's like, don't you see? That's exactly what they said about you. Yeah, and it's like, and every generation is just gonna become a bunch of fucking consumerist drones anyway. Yeah, you know, right yeah. now they're all rebellious and buck wild, but at some point. You know, everyone just becomes a uh, a drone. You know, yeah, yeah it's one of those. Before. And I think the thing was you had to choose back then because you had limited means. Like you didn't have enough money to buy everything or listen to everything. Mm-hmm. But now with like you know, obviously access permitting, like recognizing people's economic privilege to get access to this kind of stuff. But like with limited means, you can have access to every single song in yeah. the world. Yeah, for it's free. True. 
That's why, like, you know, I, I really love uh, YouTube Red. Yeah. And I, I never thought I would use YouTube Red as much as I do, but it's because people rip stuff from vinyl and there's, there's archives of stuff that, you know, no one's ever listened to. Like, there's a, there's a, a YouTube channel called Progline that's all prog rock from yeah. through the ages. There has been a lot of prog rock, and it's <laughs> fucking insane. You know what I mean? As, yeah, so, as someone yeah. who samples, like, you know, songs to make rap beats, yeah. you know, I find the most challenging stuff is prog rock because it doesn't just hand you the sample, like, jazz or funk or soul or whatever. It's really, you got to find, like, the, the right spot. The the right, like, not Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's going at, like, all crazy yeah, shit, yeah. so you really have to work a little harder. Uh, oh, hold on one second. Let me just. That's my boy. But yeah, so I, I really personally enjoy digging through YouTube over, like, you know, over Spotify or where. Although there's a lot of really cool, weird shit on Spotify. There too, is but, weird stuff. Yeah. But that is what captivates me now uh, is sort of digging back into this old stuff. Um, there's a couple labels like Sublime Frequencies um, and Now Again, which is like mm -hmm. one of the dudes uh, from Stone's Throw, I think, right? Egon, um, who sort of dig up old, obscure music from different places. One of the bands that really caught me uh, was Witch, right, from Zambia, like an old psych rock yeah. band from the 70s. And this was a time when... Jimi Hendrix and James Brown were sort of equally influencing black music in other countries, yeah. like Nigeria yeah. and Mali, Ghana, and uh, Zambia, right? Which is which, where Witch came from, and also a band called Amanaz, um, that when I was in the Caminas, we did a cover of one of their songs. But, like, there's so much cool music. I'm really not, you know, I'm a real stickler for what I listen to. And I only recently gained some appreciation for, you know, trap music and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, because when it comes to rap, I'm, I'm really into what I'm into. And I don't really sit around and listen to trap music that much. You know what I mean? So was the transition <clears throat> then from covering music into cannabis like a natural one that just oh, happened? Yeah. Or was it like no. you deciding to do that to get away from like, the way music was kind of going taste-wise? Yeah, I mean, I, honestly, the way that it happened was... I was uh, I was writing about music, right, for Vice. Yeah. And then on the side, I started a column about cannabis, uh, you know, and Krishna was editing the, the, the weekend content at the time. So basically, I started writing that, you know, Weedekit, which yeah. was uh, originally, you know, the column, which was just stories from my life. That have to That's do what with I was weed. reading. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> and... A lot, you know, at the time I was really into David Sedaris. I think that kind of shows. I was yeah. definitely maybe jacking his style poorly a little. You know what I mean? In terms of just telling stories from my life that are like, but just like, you know, I was just telling stories from my life that have to do with cannabis. And it was actually at a time when there was a lot of policy stuff going on. And I insisted on still just writing this slice of life shit because I thought it was fun. And also people engaged with it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a regular audience of people who are coming through and, you know, reading my shit and, you know, like I was really stoked on that. It was the first time I had like such a regular, well, not the first time, but, you know, 
it was it was a, a it was a good column for sure. Mm-hmm. It was enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then it was like you did some video stuff for a while, right? Like the early. I remember watching the video yeah. of you at the High Times Cannabis Cup. Yeah, I just did the first Weedicate, and then I left. And then you left. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I went to work for a company that paid me more money. Was there already cannabis money. stuff, or like was it or was I doing other stuff? Um, no, it, it was actually not doing cannabis stuff. I, I worked for Karma Loop, um, oh, yeah. doing media stuff for them, which was fun. But it was a, the company was a little bit haphazard, you know what I mean? So it was like kind of a shit show, but it was it was fun because it was a shit show too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, while I was there, I continued to write the Weedicat column. Yeah. Um, and you know, yeah. And then Carmeloup went bankrupt and laid us all off at some point about a year later. Um, but by that time, you know, it's like, I, I, I always sort of like try, I've tried to remain as self-sufficient as possible, you know, <clears throat> when it comes to getting work out or getting work on, you know, a platform or whatever it might be by just being as, you know, agile as possible and being as adaptable as possible. Um, cause when you're writing and, you know, if it's, you haven't distinguish yourself in any way or like you know made a name for yourself you're still just going at you're just pitching you know what Mm -hmm. i mean so Mm -hmm. but you know what i I did that for a long time where i just paid my bills by pitching articles and writing them for different platforms it's fun it's a little lonely it's it's kind of like romantic in that way you know what i mean in my mind the platforms are disappearing so fast though right now it's like it's changed again i would not want to be what i was now, for yeah. sure. Like, I, I wouldn't want to be a kid coming out of college and trying to become a journalist. Yeah. Which is what I was doing, um, especially a music journalist, something that's been pretty much outmoded now. Yeah. You know, in a lot of ways. We are saying, like, you know, reviews. <clears throat> Obviously, some of my favorite music journalists of all time wrote, like, incredible reviews, you know, like, and I, like, I loved reading them. Mm. But now it's, like, the era where... You can just have an article about a band. If it sounds interesting enough, or an artist, I should say, mm-hmm. sounds interesting enough, you can click on it. And you yeah. can check it out. And you're like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to buy that record. Or I'm going to listen to it next time I go on my streaming service. Or I'm going to you know, yeah. do whatever you do to check out that band. But like, the idea of mm-hmm. like someone being like, oh, you, this isn't worth your time. This isn't worth your money. It's just, it just seems so outmoded. Yeah, no, it, it, it's true. I, I think like, <clears throat> excuse me, it, it, in some ways, like the music industry is stabilized, right? Like, I, I thought it was really interesting kind of watching, like, the music world go to pieces over, you know, Napster. Mm-hmm. And then sort of circle back into Spotify, which is just Napster that you pay for. Yeah. And the amount that you pay for it is probably what Napster would have charged if the record industries were in the beginning were, like... Well, let's just make a deal. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know. It, yeah, like, no, I don't yeah. know the politics behind it, but it just like... So, you know, I also, you know, covering music for a while, what I started to notice in a lot of ways is that in this new world, and perhaps this has always been the case too, being the artist, right, in the entire machine of the music industry from the producers and the execs and the journalists and the studio musicians and the PR people and the marketing people or whoever else, right? Being the musician is the worst seat 
in the room. Everyone else there cycles through musicians like projects that, you know, that they just go, like, you know, you work on it for a while and you move on to the next one. The artists, I mean, their life cycle is one of those working cycles for all of these people, which is really a scary thing. You know, my little brother is an aspiring musician. He's really talented. And I've always told him since I was young, be everything. Because just being the artist... Worst seat in the room. Uh, yeah, no, and I would say that for not even would, music, I'd say all content creators because they finally found a way to commodify art. And mm-hmm. it's like creating content instead of art. You know, like the idea that yeah. a picture or photograph is now an Instagram view yeah. and a like, you know, and that's monetizable. <laughs> you know, like a, a film is now a YouTube video and that's a view and that's monetizable. Like everything is, mm-hmm. music is like a link that's monetizable. Like, and it's, it's like, the loss of the CD era, like people were like, oh, this is the great liberation of music. And it was, you know, like we can listen to everything and that's broke down the walls. But at the same time, what that allowed is there to be separate economies. Like Too Short sold, what, 200,000 records out of the trunk of his car? <laughs> he was a millionaire and it was out of, there was no corporate money exchanging hands. Yeah. You know, now it's like every, every time you listen to a piece of art, a corporation gets a piece. Yeah. Listen right now on this podcast, Apple's getting a piece on iTunes, Spotify's getting a piece on Spotify. Yeah. And I'm not criticizing. This is the new reality. Like, I'm not, like, yelling yeah. at the cloud. <clears throat> it, this, is, this is equilibrium. This is where we've sort of, like, you know, uh, how the industry is stabilized enough to figure out how to continue making the numbers you know, on on music or whatever, mm-hmm. right? And in some ways, it, it's optimized. I mean, you know, but I, I think it should show us that everything works in a bubble, you know? Like, think about this. People's musical tastes are being fragmented, right? So right now, you have a few artists that make like that, you know, million or few million streams a month or mm-hmm. whatever. But for the most part, people are like, you know, just making a handful. But... When, as that gets equally democratized, right, and people have more diverse tastes, right, so then it, like, reaches more of an equilibrium because you're not paying attention to the marketing forces behind major labels or major artists. You don't listen to Justin Bieber as much because you, there's not as much targeted advertising that's making mm-hmm. it through to you, mm-hmm. right? So once you get to that point, I mean... You know, a, truly a democracy with music, right? Who, uh, you know, who dictates what's worth what? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like literally, then then the, the power is in the hand of, hands of the artists. Well, yeah, and I think that's the end. The next stage is the end of art as a commodity. The end. The next stage is just the everyone's an artist. Yeah, you know, and that's what you're seeing with the YouTube star. You know, yeah. like right now we're still in the idol culture period, but eventually people are going to wake up and be like, oh, I'm, I could be that kid. Mm-hmm. Like that kid is me and I'm just watching another person's life because it's a nice escape. But like it's it, like I could watch anyone's life and I think it's just going to eventually yeah. just whittle down this whole, you know, and then or maybe people just watch like just whatever is the most dialed in format. Like, you know, you found that like there's people that love cannabis and they're so dialed into cannabis. Yeah. And they just watch cannabis content. They just want to see people yeah. smoke weed. And that's, that's a funny thing. What they're into. I'm not even necessarily one of those people. Like, and, and you know, like, like to me, the most interesting cannabis content is the stuff that very incidentally shows cannabis, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, yeah, that's <clears throat> that's our boy Justin Staple over there. Not everyone is as. Uh, 
dabbed a dabbed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let me just shake a little bit. No, it's okay. Them. We've identified the sound source. It works for the uh, verite of this project. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, no. You sure? Yeah, totally, totally. I feel I feel bad like waking him up. We greened we greened him out. We have to live with our regret, and the That's audience true. has to bear witness to uh, the damage that can be done by. Uh, you sure? Thinking you can hang with two uh, carnivores. If I move him a little bit, he'll stop. If I just go like. talking about the end of art as a commodity it's just because everyone's going to be able to be dialed into just their content that they want to see yeah yeah i mean you know yeah it is it's the end of art as a as a commodity but you know what who who cares I, right oh, you're now you're talking about the type uh, of weak content you liked <laughs> you're talking about oh yeah that, that's right so yeah i mean so i like stuff that uses cannabis incidentally in normal situations. I, I think that that's really interesting. I always use the example of Narcos, where Pablo Escobar is just smoking weed the yeah, entire time. that's what I thought was super cool about that show. I thought that was very it. cool. And, you know, regardless of, of whatever the association of he's a gangster, he's a criminal, it just shows this very mundane ubiquity of weed, just this weed around. He's looking for papers. This is what he does. You know what I mean? He's mm -hmm. a character who just smokes weed. They never really talk about it, but, you know... I, I under, like that. And it undermines the, uh, which is like was a great thing to, uh, I think, help cannabis get legalized, but this sort of like mm -hmm. passive stoner stereotype. Yeah. See, that's the passive stoner stereotype is it's culture has very, uh, you know, sneakily switched the stereotypes associated with alcohol and cannabis. Because when you talk about laziness, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like slurring your words, uh, you know, apathy or poor judgment. These are all effects of alcohol. These are yes. not effects of cannabis. Yeah. And also, you know what I, I like to say is that like cannabis is a mirror, right? It basically shows you what's in your subconscious. If you're a sack of human garbage and you have a bunch of terrible shit like locked up in there, then you know what? Smoking cannabis is going to make that come out. So like when Maureen Dowd or whatever writes an article about how she freaked out because she ate too much weed. It's because she's a terrible person. It's not because, you know, the cannabis is not doing something. It's just showing you what's in your mind. You know, and I use cannabis regularly. I feel that I'm comfortable with my flaws because of that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Because I look in the mirror all the time. I do think you can overdo it, especially if you're, like, new to it. Like, mm. I do think, like, I took a three-week tolerance break this summer to shoot in Japan. And I came back and did a dab, and it was the most intense drug experience of my fucking life. Yeah. It was like acid 2.0. It was beyond research chemicals. Like, I wasn't paranoid because fear as a concept didn't make sense to me. Yeah. It was insane. And Dude, then I was fine, crazy. you know, and, I, and now cannabis is my medicine again. Yeah. But in that moment, I was like, wow, okay, mm. this is what it feels like to... 
to overdo it. Like I never, I never really felt that. But think about this: if it wasn't for the social situation or the construct or the physical structure or whatever the environment was that you were in, that panic wouldn't manifest as panic. The, the thing about it didn't like, manifest as panic. There was no panic. Yeah. I, I was too high to be panicked. Mm. Like. Like nothing, like I was just floating in space. Like yeah. I was that high. Like I, like what I, we talked about DMT earlier, and when I smoked DMT, yeah, you know, I was higher than that. Like I crossed over to another place through cannabis. Yeah, it was fucking weird. Yeah, and then it was fine. Now it's fine. Hey, but I mean, like, think about this. Like, if you're too stoned and you're at a cocktail party, then suddenly you start feeling paranoid, right? It's not because the weed is making you paranoid it's because the set setup of a cocktail party is a total fabricated human construct <laughs> of how socializing should go that excludes you know the acceptance of someone being stoned or someone being high yeah. if you're in an environment yeah. where it's okay for you to be high like that was one thing you know like you're talking about like my first weed video my first video ever basically was at the cannabis cup in 2013 in colorado and this was one of the first times i was in an environment where Two people could be having a conversation and then just trail off and stare off in other directions and then just walk off and it's all good. Yeah, it's you all know, good. because it's not weird. Now, if you ask me what's weird, now I've been sober at a bar in New York City at 2 a.m., right? Where it's like people are acting weird because they're drunk, you know what I mean? And they're acting fucking insane and belligerent and slurring their words and like being nuts, you know what I mean? But the social construct of a bar, the setting, the setup, all that stuff is it's there to foster this behavior. Mm -hmm. If the world was set up to foster the behavior that cannabis perhaps induces, right, in some way, uh, which is much more relaxed, less destructive behavior, yeah, you know, then, you know, the world would be a different place and guys like you and me would go out more. <laughs> I think and maybe it's going there. We have the, we have a, a huge vaporizer bar scene in Toronto. And when I say vaporizer bar, I don't mean that in the sense of like, vape bro vape type thing i mean like in the sense of people vape cannabis there originally now people smoke cannabis there and some mm -hmm. allow blunts um but it's just cannabis like that's the rule huh. and uh you pay a five dollar cover to come mm -hmm. in you get access to junk you can buy all this junk food that they have there some yeah. places have cereal bars mm -hmm. and they're and, and they're like nicer places some of them not nice in the sense of like you know upscale dining type thing but like you know cool safe spaces to enjoy cannabis with other people yeah. And they're fucking safe. You know, like it's, yeah. you know, it's, uh, no one's fighting there. There's not cops being called every night. Like, and it's a scene and people go out to these places. That's where comedy happens in Toronto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Dude, that's, that's fucking wild. It's the dream. Like owning a place like that. Mm -hmm. You know, like it'd be like Cheers, but without all the negative associations that happen, you yeah. know, deep down we actually think about Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, dude, this has been awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for having man, me, man. Dude, that was a blast. Can you come back for a part two sometime? We can do other ones. Anytime, dude. This has been a thrill to get to do. And, uh, yeah, like, this is the, and I really feel like one of the few times that I've actually had someone on my level when it comes to the cannabis hanging out. And I wish Buddha from uh, Oil and Flowers had been here, too, to join this. Because then it could have been, like, a double thing. But next time. Next time around. Next Good time. shit. Thanks for having me, Damien. Thank you, Abdullah, for coming on the show. And Abdullah will be back for a part two in the future. And more cannabis will be smoked. My God, I was a little stoned on that episode. <laughs> uh, but you know what? 
that's fine. That is totally fine. We had a good time. It's all about the good times here on Turned Out of Punk. Speaking of good times, my good friend, Autry Fulbright II of Annual Noah's by the Trail of Dead and Midnight Masses, Shock Cinema, and of course, Vanishing Life as well. That is all next week on the show. One of the nicest people in the world. It's a fun episode. We will see you next week. Go out there and make your own culture. And remember, this point was driven home to me this week when visiting family. Please, please, please sign your organ donor card. Let your family know your wishes to donate organs because you're not going to need them at the point that they're going to be donated anyway. So please pass it on and, uh, you know, share that gift. Share that gift when you can't be around anymore. So do that, everyone, no matter where you are, please. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I will see you next week. Bye. Love you.